Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist. Um, Shane couldn't make it with us this evening, um, but I'm excited today to welcome Lex Jones to the show, the author of The Old One in the Sea, Whistling Past the Graveyard, The Other Side of the Mirror, Nick and Abe, and various short stories. Lex, um, we've been meaning to have you on for a while, so it's great to have you on the show, and how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. I know we, we took a while to get there, but it's it's good to be mm-hmm. here finally. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so yeah, we um not to put you on the spot or anything, but uh, we usually kick things off with our new guests. We have them do a uh, kind of like a new kid at school type of speech. So just a little bit about yourself, your writing, and any other uh, you know fun facts you'd like listeners to know about you. Okay, uh, well, I'm a, a, a sort of a horror writer, I suppose, from from the north of England. Uh, I say I suppose because it's, I think I'm mostly known for my horror writing, but I, I don't just write horror. Like some of the books you mentioned there, uh, one of them is a children's book, one of them is a, like a noir crime thriller with some horror elements, uh, and the other is like a, an urban fantasy, which has got no horror stuff in it at all. So I, I do kind of write across the board. Uh, I, I tend to focus mostly on horror for my short stories because I like to tell sort of short form horror uh, and in terms of non-fiction I also write for a couple of like blogs and interviews and that kind of thing when when the opportunity arises uh, and I've also sort of proofed and edited other other people's books when I'm asked to do so as well so I, I like to sort of keep my hand in with the other aspects of the horror writing community where, where possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah and and that's pretty cool. That's one thing um, like I had noticed, um, like when you kind of touched on, you know, you say horror writer because you do other things, but that's what you're most uh, known for. You know, I, I thought that was interesting, um, mainly because, too, even in case, like when we started this site and, you know, subsequently the podcast, our goal was, I mean, it was a little bit more narrow than, you know, the various genres that you've uh, written in. But we wanted it to kind of combine our love of, you know, horror, like noir, like gritty noir, crime fiction. So we pretty much just said, um, you know, it's a blog for fans of dark fiction. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you kind of get more known for one thing um, over another. Like, I, I bet if we were to, like, pull our listeners and stuff, they would say, yeah, you guys are, you know, a horror podcast. But um, I've always been kind of interested in that kind of like either blending of genres and styles or people who kind of write across those. And I know sometimes it's more of a just of, you know, that's what the story is. But I was wondering if, you know, when you started writing, if that was something that you had kind of set out as a goal for yourself to, you know, try all these different genres. No, it's more like the first thing you said, to be honest, in that I just have a story I want to write, so I'll just write it, and then mm-hmm. I will think about what genre to pigeonhole it in afterwards. I don't really worry about that, to be honest. I just I just tell the story that I want to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's and that seems like a like a a very good way to go because yeah you don't you don't want to force those kind of things um but yeah i was always just kind of curious about that question because i know that some people you know they they might not necessarily place the genre right away but you know they kind of operate in like one or two and i always find it fascinating when we talk to writers who you know they have a wide variety of styles um just because 
especially like as you like hone your voice like it's just interesting to kind of see like if like you said you start with the story and whatever it comes to be you worry about the genre later but you know as like maybe you see it start to pop up earlier in your writing i was wondering if you know if it's ever like different for you like if you ever take like a different approach maybe say you're writing the story and you know it's starting to feel one way or is your writing approach pretty much the same every time it it depends if i've sort of planned any sort of rules for it beforehand so like if i'm writing a crime story and i've laid the groundwork in my head that okay this is this is not going to have any kind of sort of supernatural element to it then it, it you know i i need to make sure it steers away from that Whereas if it's a story that I've just I've got a vague idea of what it is, but I don't have any specific rules, then perhaps part way through to it, you'll get an occult element that comes up, you know. So it, it mm-hmm. depends how how strictly I've planned it out. So also like with regards to um, I, the children's book that I did, that was obviously there were much more severe limitations on what kind of alleys that could go down and what it couldn't. So it, it really does depend on if the story has a tight framework around it or not before i go into it mm-hmm. yeah and yeah that makes perfect sense and um one thing that i noticed you know reading your work and kind of reading other interviews that you had done because um like i know you've written for you know other horror sites and stuff so i've come across your articles even before i had come across your books but i had seen it that you mentioned that you know you kind of gravitate towards you know, supernatural stuff, especially when you're like writing horror. And I was yeah. just kind of curious, you know, what is it about the supernatural that kind of intrigues you? And this is one of my um, one of my tendencies is to wrap like five questions into one question. <laughs> but it's just like, um, you know, where do you stand as far as like, you know, the supernatural ghosts and things? Would you say you're a little bit more skeptical do you want to believe or are you just like, I'm all in with these sorts of things? Okay. So, uh, in real life, I'm a complete atheist. I don't believe in any religion, spirituality, anything like that, because I've never seen anything or experienced anything or heard of anyone else having anything that you can't actually explain because the example I always come down to, and the worst thing in the world is when you say that. And then when somebody says, Oh, well, I've got a story. No, I'll stop you there. I wasn't there for the event you're about to describe, which might be second, third, fourth <laughs> hand. I don't have the relevant data to explain it. But just because I can't, that doesn't default to meaning, oh, it must have been a ghost then. You know, it's it's like mm-hmm. if I go to see a, a, a magician uh, or a street magician or whatever, and he does some incredible trick and you say to me, how did he do that? Well, I don't know. I don't have that information. But that doesn't mean I think he's an actual sorcerer. It just means <laughs> yeah. that there is some logical rational explanation for this which i don't have but it doesn't mean i'm going to jump to oh it must be something magic you know it it, it, because you Mm -hmm. have that fundamental understanding that that is not the real world and i think the difference between that and why nobody goes to see a, a magician david copperfield or whatever and think that they're actually a sorcerer but the difference between but then we'll go to see a a alleged psychic and think that they're real even though you can just as easily explain the stuff that they do as you can if you get a, like a magician's handbook. But the difference is wanting to believe. 
people want to believe psychics and stuff because that means that maybe they'll see the loved ones again and there's like an emotional attachment to that and that kind of blinds your objectivity but i i don't have any of that i don't know whether it's because uh, i am actually autistic and that kind of frames my view of the world in a lot of the ways i i don't do bullshit i don't do wanting to believe anything i take everything as it is everything's very sort of fact and rational based in my life so you know i, I mean i would love to be proven wrong about that but it would have to be like for me to believe in ghosts for argument's sake it would have to be something undeniably 100 percent not explainable in any other way so i talked about psychics there to use that as an example if i was to believe that people really had psychic powers there's one of two ways in which I would come to to believe, you know, come out of an encounter with a psychic and think, yep, OK, I'm a believer. I was wrong. One of which would have to be that it's scientifically studied. So you get a psychic from a, put them in, a, in like an interview room, like at a police station. They don't know who they're going to speak to. They've got no knowledge prior to this event. And I'm going to bring in a bunch of random people and ask random questions and they are going to answer those questions. I'm not going to allow them to do that thing where they like lead them to get information out of the interviewer. It's going to be straight up. Yes and no. What card am I holding up? That kind of thing. And if they don't have a 90 percent plus pass rate, then they're not doing it effectively. Just like you would study any scientific ability, because if it's a real thing, it should be repeatable. It's like if I say I can dislocate the joints on my thumbs because I'm double jointed. You can ask me to do it 20 times in a row and I can show you because if it's a real thing, why not? What, why, if it's a real thing, why can I only do it under certain conditions or, or, you know, very vague, loose rules that are easily disproven? So that's one way in which I would believe it. The other is that if I went to a psychic person and they didn't know anything about me, they didn't know I was coming. So there's no chance of like any information being fed to them beforehand. And I answer everything they say to me with yes or no questions. So they can't possibly pull anything out of me. And 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 they said something which was undeniably specific. None of this, oh, you had a grandfather. I think his name was John. Well, looking at my age and the common ages for British people of the, the age that my grandfather was likely to be, chances are John's like a one in five chance that that was his name. None of that. I want specifics. Exactly. You know, my granddad was stood there. He'd tell you his full name. He'd tell you his military rank. I want to know that stuff, you know, and it would have to be specific and undeniable. None of this vagueness. And that would be the only way i would believe it but that actually feeds into why i like to put it into my fiction because it's it's very much a case of i don't think any of that stuff legitimately exists in the real world so it's fun to put it into stories where it does because it, it just makes that world more interesting like i'm always as a viewer of horror as a reader of horror i'm always far more interested in stories that have a supernatural element even if it's a subtle one rather than where it's just a human killer or whatever because there's you can watch documentaries about that stuff if i want to watch a film i want it to be a ghost or a zombie or a werewolf or something you know yeah yeah and that makes perfect sense and um you know i thank you for kind of giving that explanation on it because i've always kind of heard that like in passing whether it be you know written interviews or things of that nature where like a person that is known for, you know, maybe doing things that are more supernatural based and they'll kind of say like, well, I don't really believe in that stuff. And I was always kind of curious, you know, how that kind of connection comes. Cause like, like, you know, it's fine if people 
don't believe in that stuff, but I've always just been fascinated on like with that aspect of it, you know, what makes it interesting for the artist to kind of use those things. And I feel like your answer, it's, it makes a lot of sense and it kind of illuminates that for me because up until then it was kind of a mystery as to like, well, if you're not really kind of into that kind of stuff, what makes it exciting? But I feel like you did a, a pretty good job of explaining it. Oh, I, I love it. I'm fascinated by it. And like I said, I would love to, to be proven wrong. I love hearing ghost stories, like accounts of alleged real ghost stories, all that kind of thing. As much as I do the straight up fiction ones, I'm massively into it all. I just never seen anything to convince me that it's true because what I the way the way I view the world, what I want to be true isn't a factor. You know, I can only mm-hmm. take what is. And and that's that's one of the things that annoys me a lot in the, the current situation in the UK with, with um, the lockdown and whatnot, is that our politicians seem to be making judgments based on what they want to be the case rather than what is. And as far as I'm concerned, you should that is not a way to judge any decision making in life, whether it's about your beliefs, your job, your uh, any kind of problem solving budgeting. You have to take the variables as what they factually are, not as what you'd like them to be. So if I'd seen or heard anything that utterly convinced me that ghosts were real in some format, then I would absolutely update my beliefs to reflect that. But it, it, a third or fourth hand experience of, oh, well, my mate's brother's cousin's sister's boss once saw, that's not going <laughs> to do it. You know, it needs to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally get it. And, you know, like for me, like, like I'm into all kinds of stuff, you know, growing up. I used to check out books on like cryptids and all kinds oh, of sure. and yeah, yeah. some of it. Yeah. Some of it is more like believable because like you said, it kind of boils down to like, if it's something that you can kind of prove concretely, or even if, you know, it's something that you had experienced versus, you know, hearing about it from somewhere else. So like, I'm a little bit more on, you know, I'm a little bit more believing in like ghosts and certain things like that. But, you know, even something like Nessie, like, okay, even if that was real at one point, the odds that throughout history, it's still this one singular creature, probably not. But it's yeah, what like, I'll what still mean. read a Nessie book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would love them to discover that the Loch Ness Monster was real. That would be the best news item that's ever occurred in my life. But mm-hmm. as you say, the chances of there being one creature that's still alive after the hundreds of years that reported sightings of that. I, I mean, I think cryptids are slightly different in that, like, I wouldn't be particularly shocked to discover that there was some sort of hominid creature which is responsible for the Sasquatch myth, for instance, because we're talking about a physical thing. That, mm-hmm. You know, the Pine Barrens is a huge area of land. The chances that there might be some sort of bipedal creature that we haven't categorised yet is, is perfectly plausible, especially when you take into account exaggeration. So, like, if you strip mm-hmm. away all the bullshit from the stories... So, like, it were eight foot tall. Well, what if it was actually about four foot tall? You know, what if it's so immediately, you know, you're not talking about an eight foot tall beast of a creature, but you're talking about a four foot tall ape sized thing, like an actual chimpanzee that might be something that lives in that woods that we haven't discovered before because of the sheer vastness of that area of land. 
all you have to do is half the supposed size of it and it immediately seems like a much more believable creature and and i think that about a lot of cryptids like the Loch Ness monster it's probably a combination of various sightings like there are big sea otters that live in, in that lake and and there's mm-hmm. also there's actual recordings like genuine scientific recordings of unusually large species of eel that live in that lake that, that grow to be about six or seven foot now you only have to look at one of them and get a photograph of it and let your imagination do the rest and that's the that's the Loch Ness monster isn't it if you pretend mm-hmm. that there's a body attached to that eel then that eel in its entirety becomes the neck of a dinosaur you only have to so i think with a lot of cryptids if you strip away the exaggeration and the imaginative aspects and all the the mythical bollocks that gets attached to it you end up with something that's actually a perfectly plausible animal that we might just not have categorized yet yeah and and that's pretty much the same uh side of the fence that i fall on when it comes to those things um like you had said that they're a little bit more physical and you know there's certain areas of the world that are just so vast and either haven't been explored or you know they're just not settled and you you don't really know what's out there so yeah i'm kind of in the same uh the same camp on that and i think you know i just made this connection but um like yesterday we had on um brennan lafaro and for to promote uh slattery falls and he was kind of talking about like when he asked writers their first um forms of storytelling and he had kind of mentioned that you know he always is fascinated by people who mention you know oral storytelling yeah and it just made me kind of think of cryptids in that like you said it could you know it could either be the thing that it is or it could be something that they did see but then you know especially like earlier earlier accounts before you had photographs before you had um you know, video and things like that, that's really what you had. And, you know, I'm guilty of this myself. You know, when you tell a story, it might be based in fact, but, uh, you know, you're telling somebody a story, you kind of want to punch it up a little bit. Sure. So that they're like, yeah. Well, that then absolutely that happens with, with the most mundane real life stuff, doesn't it? You get, you get mm-hmm. mugged one day by one desperate looking cokehead in a car park. When you tell that story in five years time, it were 10 guys and they were all really big. You know, yeah. it, it's, this is what happens with human oral storytelling. So, again, you go back to the Bigfoot and it's this, it's, it's this eight foot tall creature that were massive and it, it threw a truck at me. Well, actually, you might have been talking about a four foot thing that looked like a chimpanzee. You know, it, you strip it back to what the actual facts were and you, you get closer to trying to to, to some you know figuring out some discovery of what these things actually are but it's it's difficult with years after years of second third fourth hand stories it's difficult to strip it back to okay what what actually happened here what 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 did they really see and i don't think you're ever going to get that kind of evidence unless everyone just travels the world wearing a gopro camera attached to them at all times mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly and, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny that like because I didn't plan this at all, but it segs into something that I was going to ask you about. You know, we're friends on uh, Twitter, follow each other. And I had just um, I had just come across like a tweet you had done where you were like talking about your cat. 
And then like underneath you had said that there was a time where the local newspaper ran a story about your cat because they thought it was a beast on the moors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I was just kind of curious if you could kind of tell us about, you know, that story and kind of how, because it seems like if it made it in the paper, it must have been like a pretty, pretty big thing. Yeah, well, it was on the website for the local newspaper. Um, so it's not like a big national newspaper or anything. It's just like the local sort of areas, you know, newspaper. And it was on it was on their website. Mm-hmm. This was this was ages ago now. Um, I've tried to find the article when I wrote that tweet, but I can't find it. But I think it's one of them where they don't they probably don't have a large service or they delete stuff because the same newspaper ran ran an article about my very first book as like a local author. And I tried to find that so I could print it off and save it for my files. But I couldn't find that either, unfortunately. Um, but basically, my my cat, one of my cats, I've got several, is um, his his parent. One of his parents was a Maine Coon, which I don't know if you're familiar mm. with cat breeds, but they're the yeah. ones that are like half links, so they're massive. Um, he, one of his parents was one of them. His other parent was just a standard black moggy. So he just looks like a short haired black cat, except he's a bit bigger than normal cats. He's not like Maine Coon size and he's not like huge but when you put him next to a normal cat he looks you know like when you've got an image on 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 a uh, an image editor and you put it up to like 125 percent or something and it's just <laughs> like it's a bit bit broader a bit longer it's just heads a bit bigger feet are bigger and and you see him and he's like oh yeah he is a bit bigger and he's like longer when he stretches out and everything so from a distance particularly he does look unusually big um compared to like a normal cat so I live uh, in the countryside and I live right on the edge of fields and moorlands and stuff. And he goes off there and hunts. That's what he does. And at some point, someone had got a picture on one of those fields. Moors, were off out for a walk, got a picture of him and obviously (laughs) didn't realise that it was actually just a slightly larger than average domestic cat (laughs) and put it on put it on on this news website. And I only knew about it because I think it was my mum actually messaged me and said, have you seen that article? Is that your cat? So I had a look and I'm like, oh, God, yeah, it is. But I didn't tell them. I'm not messaging them. I thought I'm not taking that joy away from people who think they found a new sort of local monster. Because there's another one. I live near a lake and there's meant to be a giant fish. Thing that lives in there which is um i've got i did a story about that actually i included that in a in a short story but yeah so i thought no, I'll, I'll let him have it i'll let him become a new local legend <laughs> why not <laughs> yeah that's that's so cool and you know like i said it wasn't even planned like i'd planned to ask you about that and then we just happened to talk about cryptids and i was like this is just a perfect uh yeah absolutely perfect yeah. link <laughs> but well, the, uh, that's how these things start isn't it because in yeah. five years, if people down the pub are still talking about that, it won't be a blurry image of a slightly larger than average cat. It will be, I saw this eight foot black thing walking along the moors. <laughs> you know, it, it will yeah. have vastly evolved from that original encounter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and two, I know uh, you had mentioned and. I know you mentioned you used it in a short story and I don't want to ruin the story for people who I'll check it out on later, but um, if you kind of wanted to like give the title of that story, but also you said you guys have a local legend of like a fish thing. Like, are we talking kind of like a, like almost like a fish human hybrid sort of situation? Well, the story I've done kind of goes into that area. The story is called the maiden of underbank. Uh, and it's featured in a book called Dig Two Graves, Volume Two. 
um, the actual local legend, which is spoken about in the story because I included it, is that there's a pike which is apparently about like eight to nine foot tall. So like mm. we're not talking like you know megalodon big, but big enough that if you fell in the water it'd be pretty scary. Now it's absolute horseshit. There's there's not even normal size <laughs> pikes in that lake, so I don't know where this came from, but. You know, I think it's because a pike is quite a creepy looking fish. If you look at a yeah. pike, he's quite, you know, if you said, oh, it's an eight foot salmon. I mean, that's not scary, is it? It's it's just like, <laughs> no. the, the, you know, it's just like an eight foot Lenny from Mice and Men sort of fish. There's nothing intimidating about a fish like that. But a pike's got a little bit of menace to it. So maybe maybe that's why. I don't know. But it's, it's a fisherman's story, isn't it? They exaggerate everything. They catch a fish that's six inches long and it becomes a foot long when they get home and talk about it. So, it's, of, of course, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. But, yeah, I included it in that short story because I thought it would be quite a good basis for for a horror story. I mean, the, the thing in the story isn't an eight-foot pike, but they do speak about that legend as kind of the basis of, of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's so cool. And, you know, that's one of the things um, that I kind of like about those sorts of stories, like local legends, things like that. Um, That's why I think I've always been particularly drawn to like folk horror is just like the kind of reliance on that and kind of like, you know, it's. Whether, like you had said, is probably, it, well, it is bullshit because he said there's no pike in there. But even if you know that, it's still it's still kind of like a cool, you know, claim to fame for like where you're from or even just like an interesting thing to, you know, pass on to other people. And I was just kind of curious because, too, it seems like a lot of the a lot of authors who are kind of known for being like really good at that folk horror style are usually um like authors from the uk and i was just kind of curious you know are is folk horror something that you're really into and you know why does it seem to be that and you know there's tons of people who do great folks horror stories but it seems like particularly like in the uk that's where like a lot of your really known well-known authors who dabble in that style are from sure now i i I do love folk horror myself and I've, I've written a couple of stories that could be described as that uh, the most recent of which is in my um, short story collection Whistling Past the Graveyard it's called The Wreaths of Wellbridge uh, and it's about this small village where they discover uh, some dinosaur bones which are like uncategorized and don't fit any kind of dinosaur that's ever been discovered before so this local news crew turns up to sort of film the excavation and the dinosaur bones, the more the excavation continues, they are in the centre of what appears to be some sort of weird church. And it, the discovery of these bones sort of starts reigniting some really long forgotten traditions in this village and things just sort of escalate. And, and it's, it's all to do with that, um, which is uh, that that story has actually been included in a, in a film script project that uh, someone I know is working on. And they asked if they could use that one. So that's that's. Hopefully that would go well because I think it would make a good a good segment in a film. But mm-hmm. as to why folk horror from England, I think it's just the age of the place. To be honest, Rich, I think it's just that like mm-hmm. our country. Well, it's wrong to say Britain's an older country than America because it's not in terms of the mass of land. We've both been here for the same amount of time, but in sense of like how off, how long it has been 
See, I don't even like the word civilised because that, that's offensive to the fact that you had a whole race of people like in your country before white people arrived there. So I don't even like the word civilised. Mm-hmm. But if I use that term, you know what I mean by that in terms yeah. of since European culture arrived there, shall we say. Um, mm-hmm. Our Britain goes back way longer than America does. You know, I mean, I, I've got a pub near my house that was standing there as a functional tavern for about four centuries before the Mayflower arrived in America. So that's kind of the age of the place. And because of that, Britain has got layer upon layer of history. And what we consider to be, what you would consider to be old stuff in America, like a building from the 18th century, is nothing over here. You know, at that point in Mm -hmm. American history, you were still all Christian, at least. You still spoke English. You still... You know, the culture wasn't that dissimilar to what it is now, whereas here there's buildings and cultures which some which are so old that like, you know, Christianity was like the by the time Christianity arrived on our shores and became the dominant sort of thing. There was about 10 religions before that that once held sway over the land, some of which have even forgotten about. You know, we, we find statues mm-hmm. in ancient buildings in archaeology and, and paintings on urns and stuff in in archaeological digs here and people are like what's that what what religion is that from we've got no idea and i think that's why the country or or indeed any sort of european country particularly like scandinavian countries as well sort of lends itself so well to folk horror because you can dig back and find these cultures with people who's who's probably still got bloodlines here today who were Mm -hmm. worshiping things that we don't even have the name for anymore it's, it's like ingrained. It's almost like Christianity is like the polite front that we all put on of this of Britain, of Britain. But if you scratch that, it's just like the icing on the cake. If you scratch that off, there's layers of, of various flavours of, of the, that were very much here in the part of England before Christ and whatnot arrived. So I think that just that's what you want for folk horror, that kind of ancient feeling to it don't you you can't really have mm-hmm. folk horror with, with a culture that's you know you couldn't do a scientology folk horror when it started five decades ago you know you you need some yeah. sort of long ancient tradition that predates modern civilization if you like but we're still a part of these shores it, it, it can't really be imported in in quite the same way yeah yeah i totally agree um and yeah like you had said that I think that's part of what the draw is for me too, um, because you know for various reasons, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that you know we don't know about past cultures, and even ones that we do know about, you know, you find certain artifacts or you know what have you, but that only tells you so much, you know, you don't. Yeah you don't really know if that's what it was like. Like some of the, some of the theories that we come up with, you know, unless there's like writings that explain it, but for some of those, like you had said, they're from so far in the past, maybe they didn't keep written records and it was just, um, oral storytelling sort of things. It's only your best. Absolutely. I mean, there's a whole period in British history called the dark ages, which we know, very little about because it wasn't documented there's only like very few you know a few diaries that have survived or official church writings which are very skewed and that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. much so in fact that there is a theory that british the year uh, might 
as measured by like the British kind of might not be as far along as people think it is. Like some historians mm-hmm. think the Dark Ages lasted about 500 years. Some people think it only lasted about three, which would mean the year now is actually 1821, not 2021. Because there's like 200 years of history that you can't guarantee happened because things stagnated so much during that period. There was no marker points. Like when you get to the Industrial Revolution, you can say, right, invention of the steam engine. Boom, you can put a marker on that and you can see things changing Mm -hmm. from that point. But there was a whole period of history where, thanks to the church, you know, refusing progress and refusing people to have access to writing and literature and whatnot. There's a whole period where nothing much happened, really, of any significant humanitarian experience. In, in this country at least. So it's debatable amongst historians as to exactly how long that period went on for. So that kind of shows you, even that, which isn't that long ago in the length of human history, is it? We're talking less mm-hmm. than a single millennium here. And even that is sketchy with regards to how much we know about it. So then when we go back even further, and as you say, we're finding artifacts and saying, oh, this probably suggests that these ancient people did something like this. But then two years later, they find something else that confirms, oh, no, that's not that at all. That is actually part of something else, which means something entirely different. And and that happens all the time with, with, with archaeology. So we, we really have a very thin understanding of, of ancient cultures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like the big one that always like that I thought of, like, as we were kind of discussing that was like, you know, even something like, and granted, I haven't followed up on it. So maybe there is like written things, but even like, um, you know, Stonehenge is known around the world and like, they have ideas as to what it's for. But again, like, I don't think there's anything concrete that like, this is what it was used for. And that, that's just something like, you know, kind of fascinating to, uh, fascinating to ponder even. Yeah, because it could have been something massive, like some sort of temple that was a focal point for some religion. Or it could have just been a nice little rockery that somebody set up. You know, it, 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 might, have yeah. been utter, it might have been utterly insignificant, but we don't know. And and that there's, there's as many theories comfort, uh, uh, claiming to be the right one as, as there are people disputing that. So it, as you say, it is, that is a, a prime example of how little we can actually know in the absence of a time machine or something. Mm-hmm. And that kind of uh, ties into um, one of your books. Um, and like, I know you had said that um, I think it's a children's book, but so far um, I'm about halfway through because I'm reading it with my daughter um, oh, who loves it, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, nice. The old one in the sea. And kind of, you know, without getting too far into the actual plot, you know, even when uh, little Howie, you know, he meets up with Ulu or like even before he does, you know, and he finds all of those things. And, you know, it kind of opens up that same sense of like curiosity and wonder in him. You know, he finds the coins and like the carvings and it's trying to like uh, piece it together. And the interesting thing is is and again this is not giving away too much i don't think but like with ulu he doesn't really he doesn't really talk to howie about it but so that's what's kind of interesting is that even when he kind of comes face to face with him 
you know, he kind of has this curiosity and maybe like an idea of what he thinks and, you know, based off of what he had found and then trying to decipher that. So I thought that was kind of like a cool way to kind of illustrate that even because it kind of suggests that and I'm not like an expert on the uh, like Lovecraft mythos, but kind of just that like there's something out there that, you know, it even predates what we understand. Yes, very much so. And I, I didn't want to go into the mythos too heavily for that book because it is a children's book. A lot of the people mm-hmm. reading it uh, won't have read any Lovecraft and, and I didn't want it to be kind of like gatekeeper-ish in that way that you must have a full understanding of Lovecraft in order to read this. Um, yeah. But also like the, the decision to not have Ulu speak was um, quite key really. Because I tried it with him speaking in the earlier drafts and it just didn't work. It just it just felt silly and it, it kind of took some of the sort of the pathos away from it. So, you know, I wanted to make him this sort of like alien in every sense of the word being who this child could relate to through their kind of shared displacement in the world. But but having him speak just didn't work at all. You know, it, it, it's it's why I, one of the things that always annoys me in films where they have demonic possession is where they end up the demon speaks Latin, and I always think, why why Latin? It's yeah. not even it's not even that older language. There's probably about ten I can name off the top of my head that are older than Latin. So why do they always settle on that? It's like the the demons like, oh, the church thinks that Latin's an important language because it's important to them. So I'd better respect that and speak Latin as if that's something <laughs> a demon would do. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like why on earth would it be why wouldn't it be speaking like in ancient language that's so old we don't even have a word for it why why would it speak in mm-hmm. anything that's in any way a part of human history so to have ulu speak in english or anything would just be ridiculous yeah yeah and um you know like like you said i think it could have worked but like you said it would have been kind of silly and not believable but that kind of cracks me up because with the demon thing because i had never even really considered that like i did kind of think it was a bit odd but yeah like why wouldn't they just you know like you said speak something that's like so old from maybe like whenever they were created why would they speak something that's like easily understandable there's a there's a great example that combines that point with the stuff about psychics i was saying earlier um some of my favorite ghost stories are um by the uh, British Victorian ghost story writer M.R. James, um, mm-hmm. absolute uh, famous ghost story writer in England. He, he, and, and some of his stories in the 1970s uh, were uh, converted into films by, by the BBC. They used to do this series called Ghost Stories for Christmas, where every Christmas Eve they would show uh, an adaptation of a famous ghost story, usually by M.R. James, but occasionally they do one by Dickens or someone else. And there's an adaptation of one of his stories, uh, which the, the protagonist of which is a priest who does not believe in supernatural phenomena, but ends up finding himself in the middle of a situation where he kind of has to. But to introduce his character in, in the film version, at the start, you see him basically debunking psychic mediums. So he attends like a medium where they're all sat around the table and doing the joining hands and all that. And and the, the, the psychic lady says that she is possessed by or made contact with the the spirit of a monk who lived on the site of that building in the 16th century or whatever 
So this priest starts speaking to her in French and she can't understand him. So then he starts speaking in Latin and she can't understand him. And he says, oh, that's very odd because a monk living in this area in the 16th century would have speak French or Latin as the first language. They probably wouldn't have spoke English. So I'm curious why he can't understand me. And I just thought that is brilliant. That's like such a massive little middle finger to these people is to just catch them out in that kind of a way. Because it's mm-hmm. what's your argument? If you're actually possessed by this guy, what's your argument that you can't respond to that? And it's it's tied into the point we're saying about demons. Why on earth would they choose that language? So why would this 16th century French monk speak English? Or why wouldn't he speak French is a better question. So it's 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 always an interesting point that that I always think of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, kind of on that point, like you said, I think the fact that um, Ulu doesn't really speak to Howie um, verbally anyway, um, it, it does fit a lot better in that, uh, in that regard. Um, and two, I think, especially, you know, for any reader, but, you know, especially for, um, you know, younger readers, I feel like it makes it a little easier for them to to, you know, kind of make Ulu like he has his own characteristics, but kind of to use their imagination and maybe kind of color him in, you know, whatever they imagine in their mind. I haven't considered that, but that's a very important point for, for kid uh, children readers. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is that is beneficial because um, it, it kind of lets them sort of see him how they choose to see him doesn't it rather than giving him a specific voice as to exactly Mm -hmm. what he would say in in every situation yeah yeah that's a good point yeah and um i was curious too did you like i know earlier you had mentioned when you when you sit down to write a story it's not about the genre or anything it's just the story that you want to tell did you initially set out to write a children's book well i mean it's a book for all ages but kind of more of a children's book did you kind of set out with that goal in mind from the outset and if so kind of what inspired you to uh tackle that form of storytelling Uh, yeah that one was planned to be a children's book uh, because the the sort of genesis of it if you like was a, a conversation i've had with another author where we were discussing Lovecraft and whether or not you could adapt some of his stories for children and we spoke about the fact that there already are some in existence but a lot of them are very like very cutesy like very Mm -hmm. very young age you know like Cthulhu meets a magic elf or whatever and it's very very big googly eyes big cutesy very very young age you know which is fine you know you need to get children reading and into stuff as early as possible there's nothing wrong with that but I was discussing the idea of writing these as like a story for children who are about like seven or eight years old, like old enough to actually be, you know, not like one day Cthulhu found a rainbow, you know, not, not that kind of a story, but an actual yeah. book. And we didn't think it had really been done, certainly not 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 to our knowledge. So I decided I'd, I'd have a go at it just to see if I could really. And, and then the story started flowing and I, I'd always wanted to set a story in a sort of rundown seaside town because I think there's like a kind of a, a slightly sad magic to places like that um, where you get these like old fairground rides and, and seaside attractions that were clearly used to be massively popular but now now they're not so much 
um, for whatever reason. And I think that I'd always wanted to set a story at something like that. And I hadn't, I'd never quite found one that fit, but then it, it just sort of matched up because I knew with it being Cthulhu, this story needed to be set close to the sea. Um, unless it was set on the sea, because like an earlier idea was perhaps it would be set whilst Howard's family was out on a cruise, but then on a cruise ship of some sort, but I did, or, or like even crossing the sea to travel to America, that was one mm-hmm. one early idea, but I, I didn't that didn't fit, so I decided on a coastal town, um, and then yeah, that that just sort of fit together perfectly with with the the seaside, the abandoned seaside town, which kind of gave the whole book its its tone, like it has got a slightly melancholy tone to it all and that's that's very deliberate and i think the setting just sort of fits that so yeah i, w- I was very pleased with the way that all came together but yeah it, it did come from from a conversation as to whether or not it could actually be done yeah and the setting i feel like it i've always been kind of attracted to those kinds of atmospheres too um and even like aside from you know just like the sea like even like especially now obviously not all but there's a lot of great like indie horror films that are set in either you know ireland or england and to me anyway it always seems like they kind of set it in um it's like like overcast it's rainy it's kind of like cold looking um even um there's a great show on netflix called katla about um it's an icelandic show and pretty much that's like what the whole atmosphere is for the eight episodes and i don't know what it is maybe it is that kind of you know evoking that you know it's a little bit cold and damp like to me it just seems kind of like the perfect setting for a horror story i don't know what it is but it just kind of gives you that uh that feeling I agree. I think there's something fundamentally vulnerable about it being dark and cold. It just makes you feel a little bit less safe and confident than if it's in the height in the middle of the day in summer. I mean, you can mm-hmm. do horror in summer. There's, I mean, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth films are set there, and and yeah, like a lot of it's at night, but it's still not cold and dark and foggy, is it? But it, it, it and there are plenty of horror films that do actually take place during the day now. A, a lot more zombie films have started going down that route, which which again makes sense because in something like a pandemic where you've got people infected with something, why wouldn't they be running about during the day? You know, it, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to do that. But there is just something fundamentally ingrained in us as humans that the dark is a scary place, quite simply because you can't see what might be in it. So you walk into a 10 bedroom big country house in the middle of the day and it's not the least bit scary because you can walk into any room and if the curtains are open you can see everything that's in there but you walk into that exact same house 12 hours later and it's suddenly intimidating because anything could be in any corner and i think that just is just a part of human evolution isn't it just that you need to know what's in the dark because otherwise it might jump out and eat you so that is just fundamentally underlines any form of horror really whether it's a human attacker with a knife or a supernatural entity i just think places that are dark just just add to that and i think somewhere which like you described somewhere which is dark and cold and rainy all the time even during the day just just emphasizes that because it means you you haven't even got the the clear light of day to escape from it yeah yeah and I, it's one of like my favorite settings and like 
it's that's the one thing that I like about um, this book in particular is that like that's the kind of feeling that you evoke, you know, with like the words and stuff. And um, I was kind of curious, too, because, you know, I know it's been out for a little bit now, but it seems like, you know, myself and a lot of my friends, um, we've been like reading it, not just for ourselves, but reading it with, um, you know, our children and I'm sure I know a lot of people have probably reached out to you about it, but that's got to be pretty a pretty cool thing, you know, that, um, you know, you had set out to write like a kid's book. But it's, in fact, kind of a story that is for people of all ages. But I think another cool thing is, you know, it's able to kind of bring together, um, you know, parents and their uh, children like there's nothing wrong with like some of the other children's books but like you know as a horror fan you know you might not really get as much enjoyment you know reading about like the little fire engine or you know something <laughs> sure, like that sure well I, so, I did have in mind that i would hope that adults who were familiar with lovecraft would be happy to buy this and read it with the children particularly because you have that thing where children often want to read a book like five times over so you know, yeah. you, you want to give those people something that they don't mind reading five times over. But but yeah, anytime anybody messages me or tweets or anything to say that the children have read it and really enjoyed it, that means the absolute world to me because that's that's what you're going for when you write a children's book. You there's something magical about giving someone a a book that early in their life that they enjoy and might remember. Because like I've read probably about ten books in the last year and I could probably off the top of my head tell you what about three of them were because as an adult you just kind of read stuff and then it, you're like oh that was good and then that's it you're done with it and very occasionally something will stick with you you know whereas mm-hmm. children you remember those books that you loved and you'll probably remember them for the rest of your life and you'll probably yeah. end up reading them to your children and if you can give somebody one of them that's really special as an author to hear that you've you've touch somebody in, in that way and, and and that someone's so young because there's, there's an honesty as well about child readers you know you you could come up yeah. and say to me that oh i've read your book and i absolutely love it and that's nice and thank you very much but you could absolutely be bullshitting me because adults do that whereas a kid isn't gonna say they like a book if they don't like it yeah <laughs> you know so there's, there's something really special about that as well like i very recently i discovered that uh, a teacher in Spain has been using that book to help her class of children learn English. They got to pick a book that they would read together in English and use it both to read the story, but also to discuss the language and to use it as like an aid in speaking English. Uh, And they picked that book, which was which was really special. So then at the end of term, the teacher got in contact with me and asked if I would do like a Zoom chat with them to let the kids ask me whatever questions they wanted about the book or writing in general and all that kind of thing. So I did that a couple of weeks ago and that was that was really special. It was just sort of seeing like how excited they were and all the questions they had about it. And I mean, I, I was a little bit reluctant to do it at first because I'm not particularly confident and outgoing. So anything like that is it's not quite the same as standing in front of a room full of people, but it's it's ostensibly the same thing. 
But yeah. I kind of thought to myself, imagine how exciting it would have been as a kid if we'd been reading a book in school and then you got to speak to the person who read it. Like, I never think of myself as like a proper author, for want of a better term. I don't think of myself on the same scale as as like big, you know, proper authors. I just think of myself as a guy who writes books and occasionally gets lucky and gets them published. But but to them, they wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> so yeah. to them, that would be just as exciting as if they were getting a, a proper author to come in. So I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be able to do that for them. So, so I did it and it, it went really well. It was lovely. Yeah, that that's such a cool thing. Um, and I'm sure that, um, you know, obviously it was special for you, but I'm sure it was special for them because, yeah, like, for instance, just like, um, you know, I was born in the late 80s and growing up, like my first experience with horror was reading Goosebumps books, yeah. which were just massive for people kind of born in that age range and yeah, yeah like yeah with like zoom and stuff now like you were able to do that with those kids like like i just imagine like if back then we had that and they're like because he was at like the height of like children's books at that time if it's like okay kids yeah we're gonna have rl stein like zoom your zoom your classroom like i would have lost yeah. my mind <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure he would have done it as well, because by all accounts, he's very he's a very lovely chap and he's he's very engaging with his fans and stuff. So I'm sure he would have done that had that option been available at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I think you had said that um, you had read them, too. And I always ask like fellow like writers that we have on that, you know, are kind of around my age range that grew up with those. Like, I'm just curious if you had any. um that you that were like your favorite from that series not from ghostbooks because it was only something i kind of read once and then sort of put aside um there was gotcha. a tv series adaptation of it but i actually preferred oh, yeah. there, was a, there was another tv series which was called um are you afraid of the dark which yes I, that was that australian i feel like it was australian but i might be wrong i'm I not sure but I remember liking that a bit more than Ghostbumps. It just felt a little bit older. And there's some stories yeah. on that, which I remember even now. But the 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 first, speaking about ghost stories as a child, the, the first one I ever read, well, actually, it was told to me. But, um, my grandfather used to, to tell me ghost stories because he knew I was into all of that. Um, so he told me a story by M.R. James, who I mentioned earlier, which is called um, Whistle and I'll Come to You. And he, he it's about a story about a guy who finds this really old whistle on a beach and he blows it and then he starts seeing something out of the corner of his eye in the distance. There's like a vague shape which gets closer all the time and nobody else can see it and he kind of starts driving him insane and he puts the whistle back but that doesn't do anything. And he's got a quote on it carved into it which he discovers which says, who is this, who is coming? And it's in Latin. And... Um, I, I used to ask my granddad to tell me this story over and over again at like four years old um and it just kind of sparked a love of ghost stories in me so much so that i have a tattoo on my chest of of that whistle with with the quote carved under it um i've got it, the quote written underneath it so you can read it um and uh yeah sadly my granddad passed away before any of my work was published so i never got to share that with him but i always wanted to get some sort of memento of his involvement with with inspiring me to do that so i got that tattoo but that 
story specifically is one that I remember asking him to be told like over and over and over again at a very young age and he, he managed to tell it in a way that was terrifying and yet also suitable for a child yeah yeah and that's that's such a cool thing you know that because that's another thing that I always like to ask people is kind of like their earliest experiences, um, you know, with a genre, whether it be storytelling or TV. And that's really cool that you were able to share that with them. Um, and that's kind of how things uh, got kicked off. I'm not really sure where my love of it came from. Like the earliest thing I can really remember, like I said, is like the Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark? Which there's an episode that I'll, I still think about occasionally <laughs> that... Um, like when I was a kid and I saw it, I think I had nightmares for a couple weeks. Which one was that? I want to know if it's one of the ones that <sighs> I always remember. If I and I could be totally messing up the details because I haven't seen this probably since it originally aired. But there's one where like uh, it was like a vampire one. It was like a, I think it was almost like a Nosferatu sort of thing. And he was like coming out of the movie screen. And, oh, like, that sounds familiar. Yes. And, like, attacking people and, like, something about that back then, like, when I used to get scared, um, you know, because, like, too, I, I was into, like, aliens and UFO books, and I would read them late into the night, and then, you know, it was time to go to sleep, and we didn't have, like, air conditioning, so the windows would be open, yeah. I, and, like, I did the same thing with this episode, even if it was, like, 100 degrees, I'd pull the sheets up over my head, almost <laughs> like a human burrito, and that episode had me doing that for a couple nights. <laughs> I remember the one with um, there was something in the basement, but you never see what it is. And I think that's what did it for me. There's, yeah. there's something in this basement that speaks to this child. And he basically tells him that if he feeds it, he can have whatever he wants. So he starts tricking his bullies at school down into the basement. And, they, yeah. they never, and they, then he gets like a new bike or whatever. And all you see is like there's like a, it goes down to the basement and there's like like another door in the basement, like a little cellar door, which you would open it up and there might be some pipes behind it or whatever. But this door would open and all you could see inside it was pitch black. And then you'd just see two little red eyes glowing, but you never see what they're attached to. And I think that's what did it for me, because as soon as if that had, if something had come out and it's it's a rubber it's a guy in a rubber suit or some badly cgi thing this the the fear of it is gone then immediately but the fact that you never see it just stuck with me because there's something much scarier about that but i think that's that's a a, that stays even now i always think that if you don't see something or don't see much of something that is much scarier than when you do and yeah uh, like there was an epic. This is such a random example, but I've just this past year I've I discovered the Star Trek for the first time in my life. I've never never really been into it, but I decided to start watching the original series this last year, and I got really into it. I really enjoyed it. And there is an episode where this team uh, crashes down on a planet that's completely blanketed by fog. It's like Silent Hill, but the entire planet. And there's some things live in the fog and just keep picking off the crew now when you see it it's a guy in a big furry ape suit but on youtube somebody has recut that episode to move out all the bits where you see the monster so instead you never see it and then it's like a legitimate horror film 
because you're on this the entire planet's blanketed in fog you've got to leave the safety of this ship to find food water anything that you can possibly cobble together to repair the ship so you can send a distress signal out um so you've got to leave the ship but as soon as you're more than about 10 feet away from it you can't see your hand in front of your face and there's something else moving around in that fog and as soon mm-hmm. as you when you see it and it's a guy in a rubber in a rubber furry suit it ruins all of that but but taking those bits out and it was a legitimately scary thing and i think that's a a masterful trick to do that but you were saying there about you can't remember when you specifically got into horror it's the same mm-hmm. for me because the only reason my grandfather told me that story is because he knew I was already into that stuff. He didn't just come out one day and say, oh, I'm going to tell you a ghost story. He only did that because he knew I already loved ghost stories and monsters and horror and anything to do with graveyards and old castles and anything like that. So it, it obviously it was already something that my family knew about me, even at like four or five years old. So I, I honestly can't point to the genesis of where that came from. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, that's the first time that I had really thought about it, too. And I feel like, you know, just with everybody, like, your memories kind of fade over time. Maybe there was something early in my childhood, but it's it's interesting. Like, every time that I've kind of talked about that with uh, previous guests, you know, it's always like, yeah, it's because, you know, I read Goosebumps and, you know, watch these horror movies and stuff. But, like, I'm never sure, like, maybe it was the book cover. Maybe it was something even earlier than that. Sure, but yeah, yeah. Like, I give these examples, but now, like, talking about it with you, yeah. Like, it's not like I can say this was the definitive singular moment to where I got into this kind of stuff. No, it's difficult to, to remember, isn't it? Because it could have been something so subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have been an episode of a cartoon series that, where they went to a haunted house and you particularly like that episode or it could have just been like you said the imagery on the covers for the goosebump books if that really was the start of it it's it's really difficult to know what lures you into something as a as a child in that way yeah yeah and two to your point about um like the effectiveness of you know not really showing the monster so to speak you know i obviously there's pros and cons to both i love both but yeah i've always been fascinated too with those and you know like a good example of that is um you know mallerman's book bird box where yes really he never he never really tells you in that book what it is and it's almost kind of like you know it ties into that whole thing you don't see it so it could kind of be anything the thing like with his book and you know other examples of that is that you don't see it so you're conjuring it in your mind and i feel like when you do that it's almost like you're subconsciously using like your own fears to kind of like project like what it could be in there and that's what makes it such like a a grabbing and visceral thing for for people yeah because what you would picture in that case would be entirely different to what i would come up with and i think whatever it mm-hmm. act, which would be entirely different than what the next person comes up with and i think if they had either described it in the book or showed it in the film adaptation it, it might not be any of those things it might be something yeah. that none of none of us find particularly scary so 
if you leave it as completely unseen, particularly for a story like Bird Box that relies so heavily on it not being seen, you know, I mean, there's some things you can extrapolate about it, like the fact that it affects so many people means either there's more than one of it, it's mm-hmm. unbelievably massive, or it can travel insanely fast. Because you're not talking about, like, a humanoid being, are you? who only can be seen in one place at once because it wouldn't work. The concept of the film wouldn't work. It, it needs to be something that a lot of people can see at the same time, which means, like I said, either it's huge, so like a massive thing that flies over cities, or it can duplicate itself so it can be seen everywhere at once, or it's not even a physical being, so it can be in multiple places at once. It's, 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 you can extrapolate that, but even with that information, you really cannot get you get, get you get nothing about what it might physically look like. Yeah, yeah, and like there's so many there's so many great examples of that. But yeah, I feel like you know I'm a big fan of both. Like even like say creature movies, I'm even a big fan of those where like you see it all the time. And also the other ones, but yeah, there's just something, there's something oh, extra kind of spooky. I, I, I yeah. Love seeing a monster. I love seeing the great design of the monster. I, I even love when the design's crap. It's it's enjoyable. And it's <laughs> yeah. Play. But but I just think it's not scary then. Once you've seen it. Yeah. I, I had this discussion with a friend the other day. I can't remember what what was the topic, but but basically like imagine you're being chased by you're in the, you're walking through the woods at night, walking your dog or whatever, and you hear branches crack behind you or like leaves crunching on the floor and it gets closer and closer all the time and it's pitch black and you can't see anything then something jumps out and it's either a werewolf or a guy with a machete in a hockey mask or whatever yep still scary because now this thing's you know trying to attack you but it's not as scary as that bit where you could just hear it because Mm -hmm. now it's just a physical thing to be dealt with and at that point the fact that it's a monster, like a giant lizard man or whatever, is no different than if it was a lion or even a giant rabid dog. It's just a yeah. physical thing that wants to do you harm. And at that point, it's no different than a human attacker with a weapon. But when you can't see it, you don't know what it is at that point. And that's the scary bit of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> I... I can I picture a real life example. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't seen it. I didn't end up seeing it, but uh, a real life example of that very thing is, you know, growing up where I lived, I would go with my dad night fishing all the time, like really late at night, um, like sometimes midnight, one, two in the morning, um, when I would visit him on the weekends. Um And we would always go out and we would go into the woods. Usually there was like a pathway right behind his house, so it wasn't very long. But every once in a while we would, you know, because it it was there was like a trail and then it would eventually kind of connect to like a uh, like a park sort of area. And it was, you know, like a good like mile or so hike. And we'd be out there night fishing. And then on the way back, like I heard this sound like we were on our way back. We had like flashlights and things. But and it almost sounded like just someone screaming at the top of their lungs in the woods. 
And, you know, I I later found out that, you know, there's, you know, certain animals and things that make noises that sound like that. But when you're, you know, 10 or so in the dark woods and you can't see it, but you just hear that sound. Man, I ran so fast back to our house. I've never run that fast in my life. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever heard of fox when they're like doing the mating calls and stuff? They, They make a horrendous noise and if you don't yeah. know that that's what it is it's terrifying noise when you know it's exactly. a fox you're just like oh it's a fox but when you don't know it's just that sound like you said yeah yeah that and that that's one of the things that i'd heard that it might have been but yeah like you said that's like a good illustration because like had i known it was a fox you know he still might be kind of like eh, i don't want it to get too close or what have you but like just hearing it versus knowing that that's what it was. Yeah, it really uh, amplified the terror. <laughs> Very, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, well, that would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. But um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about too. Um, I think your I think this is your most recent release. Is um, you know, the whistling uh, past the graveyard is your yeah. short story. And I know you have written a lot of short stories, and I was just kind of curious what, um, you know, what is it about that form that you like? Is that like your preferred form or, you know, do you kind of like them all equally and you just so happen to have, um, write more of those at that time? The honest answer is that I, I prefer reading short horror stories. I think there's very... <laughs> comparatively speaking i think it's difficult to come up with a short with a horror story that is worth fleshing out into a full novel i mean you Mm -hmm. must have read horror novels where you think this could have been a short story yeah you know and i i've yet to come up with an idea where had i fleshed it out into a full book people wouldn't have made that accusation about it you know because you can you can always let's go into this character's history let's do this let's make this scene that take longer like you, you can always do that if you want to but i always think if you can tell it in 30 pages then you probably should and i think particularly with horror because it leaves you with that short sharp shock of okay so that was weird and then you think about it whereas if it's a book that takes you three weeks to read because it's 500 pages long it it's difficult to give the audience you know you can't sit in bed and read it in one night you know what i mean it's, it's and i think yeah. that with a short horror story you go to bed you open the book you go, i'm going to read story number three tonight you read it it's 30 pages long go to sleep maybe you think about it a little bit it's not broken up it's quite the same way so you know much much better authors than me are able to craft a story that does last 500 pages and make it chilling throughout so you remember every aspect of it but i I always find that the stories I come up with are much better told in the, in the short form. So I just, it's my preferred method to do horror, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think a lot of us, I mean, too, it's interesting because a lot of people, like when we ask that kind of question, you know, like, do you prefer one format over the other? It's usually either about it's usually short stories or novellas because and, you know, there's different skill sets for kind of all of them. But I was one of those people because like a lot of people we asked, they've always kind of preferred the shorter forms. And like even if 
I had thought that some were kind of like, yeah, you could have cut a lot of this back. Yeah. Like I, I always used to be one of those people. Like I love like these like big door stops, like like <laughs> something like Stephen King would do, like some of those oh, ones yeah, where it's like yeah. a thousand pages. Like the stand or rates or yeah. Yeah. And now no, I no, find but I mean, myself. If the story justifies it, which both of those do, then fair enough. It's just when you read one that doesn't. Yeah. Exactly. But I like I think part of it was just like on for me, lack of exposure to it. Like I was kind of was like, eh, I'm just going to go with these versus, you know, shorter things. But kind of as I got more involved with like, you know, indie horror, especially and the various, you know, great authors that are out there and a lot of them doing that as I got exposed to more of those like shorter styles, I found myself kind of leaning more towards those first and again like you said still like the longer ones and like novels um but like i found myself being drawn more towards that because there's something you know i've written some but as someone who's like a relatively new writer to me there's just something fascinating about trying to craft like this fully formed story and like get all of your ideas in there and then having that kind of constraint. Cause like with a novel, you can kind of write it however you want when you're writing like a short story, especially for like, you know, say a submission or something, you have that like kind of limitation. Oh yeah, absolutely. You've got to get in there, do your job and get out. Haven't you? You can't, you can't delete yeah. all the things like in a novel. If you want to spend a full chapter talking about why this guy's marriage broke down, you can do that. But in the short story, you've got to establish in probably one sentence that he's divorced. He's divorced and it didn't end well. That's it. Boom, move on. Get on with it. Whereas in a novel, you might labor over that and go into flashbacks of the marriage falling apart and all that. But you ain't got time for that in a short story. So you just got to get to the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if this is how it is for you, too, but I've heard, you know, creators of various things writers and even kind of filmmakers where it's like kind of kind of the concept of having that kind of like rigid framework you know for filmmakers um some of them will mention you know things like budget or certain things but just that kind of idea of constraint and working within constraint that sometimes it can it can unlock like a creative idea or something you didn't even really know you could do. And it was kind of brought about by that kind of constraint. And I was just wondering if had that. Yeah, I do. Because sometimes it's like saying, it's like walking into a sweet shop as a, as a child or candy store, as as you call it. Like, um, and if someone said you can have anything you want and you'll just stand there and stare at the shelves for an Mm -hmm. hour Whereas if you if you if your mum says you can have anything you want for two dollars, you've got a restriction now. So you're gonna get a bit creative. I'll have two of them and one of them, and I can still afford three of them, and I can, you know, and you'll 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 max out that two dollars. And it's the same with a short story. If you're thinking, I can write a horror story about anything in the world, you, you just stare at this blank screen. Whereas if someone says, and it's got to be set in a small woods, or it's got to be set in on the water or it's, it's got to be themed around a particular thing space for instance you, you, then you, you think right i've got my, my, my boxes around me it's got to be within that and and then your imagination starts starts working with regard to how i can 
how I can set something within that period without doing what's been done before. And I, I, I do think that bit of restriction does help. I really do. It goes against what you think logically, because logically you think it would stifle it, but it, it tends not to. Yeah, yeah, and that I've I've always found that kind of thing um, fascinating. Like I can't remember where I had first heard it, but the most recent example is like an um an interview with the filmmaker Mark Duplass, and he's kind of known for doing films like on a smaller budget, but like you know like they don't you can't really notice it and that's kind of like the last time i had heard it but you're right it it kind of it kind of goes against like that logical part and for me as someone who's only recently started like trying to do it um like at least for me there's people who have different you know approaches or i guess you would say difficulties when they first get started like mine would be like okay i have this pretty concise idea i feel like i can fit it in and then like as i'm doing it the next thing i know i'm like oh shit like i'm only halfway through this thing and i've only got a hundred words left until (laughs) until i hit the uh thing but i feel like too it kind of helps like working in that like even if you're like well-versed in writing in that form like it kind of helps you keep like your writing tighter i would think and like your self-editing process yeah you keep stripping out stuff that's not necessary and and keeping to the point a lot more definitely Mm -hmm. like there's a series in the uk i don't know if you've got it over there on any on any sort of um like channels where you can watch british tv but there's a series called inside number nine i don't know if you've got that one I've heard of it and I keep meaning to check it out because I think it's on Netflix. It's oh, is it on Netflix? Netflix? Okay, it might be on Netflix. I think so. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's very, very strong. It's not like dark. It's, it's sort of comedic, but it's properly horror as well. And every episode is, is a different thing themed around the number nine. So it might be the number nine bus. It might be the hotel room is number nine. It might be around a, a team of football players and one of them's got the number nine on the back of the shirt or whatever it's just that's just the the linking thread and every episode is like a 40 minute horror story but it, it, they are because the writers of it are so good it is so every episode is so tight and like there's not a sentence wasted you know like everything mm-hmm. is is important every line of dialogue is is great and while still feeling natural it's not like um like m night Shyamalan's like exposition with his characters where someone will come in purely to say something that they need to say to drive the next scene forward. And you think nobody would say that, you know, someone will come in an office and be like, hello, Judith. Oh God. I remember when we got married 15 years ago after we used to work together. And you think people don't speak like this. You've just, you've just said that because the audience needs that information, but there's, there's none of that. They managed to, to, to deliver exactly what information you need to follow that story and it's so tight and so well done. And I think the fourth, the fact that it's limited to like 40 minute episodes really helps with that. Whereas if they were each like a 90 minute film, it wouldn't feel quite as well done. And I think that's that's a really great example of of this being done in a TV show. Yeah, and I, I definitely I wrote that down because, like I said, I had been meaning to check it out, but I hadn't really heard about it from anybody but now i'm de- i'm definitely going to make that the uh the next show that i watch i think but, um, it's really good very strong yeah it's it sounds great and um you know it's it's interesting too like this 
I mean, it kind of has to do with writing because, you know, the people who are writing the episodes. But that's the other thing that I found is like I've always been a big fan of um, British TV shows, like comedies, especially like um, peep shows, like one of my favorite shows. Yeah, it's hilarious. But uh, that's what I've always found is the kind of difference. And I feel like a lot of what makes some of those so good is not only just like the episode run times, but the like season lengths, yes. like you know, a lot of British TV shows, they're fairly small, like yeah. in, compare it to like U S shows. Cause like U S shows, some of the times the seasons, like anywhere from like 20 to 25 episodes and you get Isn't like a ton of, there's a reason for that isn't there over there it's something to do with like you have to get enough episodes to get to syndication and and then yeah we don't have that over here you see our commercial tv doesn't work quite the same way so i think as you say it is very common that british shows particularly sitcoms will have like seven episodes a season or something like that and and yeah most british sitcoms don't have more than about three seasons a few do but most generally have about three yeah yeah and i've always i've always kind of thought about that in terms of like you had said like how like it can make things tighter like the show or a story like a lot of those it feels like you don't really have as many filler episodes because i can't tell you how many i mean some u.s shows are starting to cut it back a little bit to like maybe 13 but yeah i remember you know growing up and stuff like some of them they were like 20 some like 25 and it would run from like september all the way up until the summer and there's tons of episodes where you'd be like you literally could have just scrapped this entire episode and you wouldn't have lost anything with yeah. like a season long story and when you do have a season long story in the background it it, it kind of it can ruin the flow of that even in like the best shows like one of my absolute favorite shows i've ever seen is is buffy the vampire slayer but what always mm-hmm. happens with buffy with the insistence on having like 25 episodes per season is you get about two or three episodes at the beginning that sets out what the big bad guy is going to be that season what the big plot is who the bad guy is what they're doing you know that's what's going on but then they'll forget about that for about 10 11 filler episodes yeah and and so you're like oh okay so this guy who's planning to open the door to hell and end the world and you're desperate to stop him you've just forgotten about that now while you're gonna have a song and dance episode have you so okay (laughs) he's not important now because you've got exams at school that need repairing for and there's a guy who's doing magic to cheat and pass or something never never mind this guy who's gonna end the world next week let's focus on this for a bit you know and and (laughs) it just kind of it interrupts like the immediacy of how big this problem is supposed to be and i think that's it's something they used to do in the X-Files, I think, quite prominently, where you'd have what they called mythology episodes, which were yeah. tied to the grander story. And then you'd have your individual ones. The X-Files is an interesting example because I think most people agree, including myself, that the non-mythology episodes are actually better. Yeah. It, 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 if you, I think you kind of sometimes need to decide which way you're doing it. And I sort of feel that like if Buffy was made now, you would have... Uh, you wouldn't have any of the filler episodes you would just have the season arc so like 
season one would purely be about the master trying to open the hellmouth and season two would purely be about angel turning evil and signing back up with spike and drew and all of that and and you know every season would purely focus on the main story which which would be a shame because some of the the filler episodes are brilliant and are fantastic television with with a show like buffy and it would be a shame to lose them but it is inescapable that the reason the show has that many episodes is to meet the syndication target so there are yeah. a lot of episodes where like i say you just kind of have to forget that they're supposed to be dealing with this world ending problem and and think oh no it's fine that they're worrying about the high school problem right now that's that's not a frivolous waste of time when the world's gonna end never mind let's just forget that and watch them having a nice dance you know and that's you <laughs> yeah. kind of have to just do that to yourself in order to go with the flow yeah yeah exactly um and kind of on that note um because you said that was like one of your favorites uh, i'm just kind of curious i always like hearing what our guests are kind of into lately so i was just kind of curious you know what what books have you read lately that you've really enjoyed um tv shows movies anything anything that you really enjoyed that you uh think more people should be checking out but TV shows, like I said, I've just just started watching Star Trek this year. I've never watched that before, uh, and I'm I'm really liking that. It's nice to sort of discover something mm-hmm. uh, that's been around for a long time, but sort of going from the ground level, because I I think you can't just dive in with the latest seasons. I, I don't even know if I'm going to carry on watching the newer series, but I'm I'm very much enjoying the original ones. Um, I'm also just started watching Bob's Burgers, which I've never watched before. That's yeah. really good. I've, I've, I've never seen that before, but that's much stronger than I thought it was going to be. The first season's a bit ropey, but it, it gets going and it's it's really great. Um, then there's shows which I always watch when they come back for another season, you know, like the um, American Horror Story and, and The Witcher and, and various other Netflix things. I mean, it's it's difficult now to say what your favorite shows are because you've probably watched yeah. 10 in a week. It's, it's yeah. not like, you know, like in the last month, I've probably watched the entirety of about four different shows and, and they're much more disposable. You know, I mentioned Buffy there. Buffy was a huge part of my life for about eight years because for every week I would watch it and then I would buy them on video and I would take them up to my grandfather's house and we would watch them together because he was really into it as well. So, it was a big part of my life for like seven years. Whereas now someone decides, Oh, I'm going to watch Buffy. Someone who was like 15, 16 years old, and they can probably get through the entire thing in a couple of weeks and they might love it. They might absolutely love it. But in a year's time, they'll have forgotten about it. It's disposable in a way that shows weren't when we watched them. So for that very reason, you say, what shows have you watched lately? Apart from the ones I'm still watching, I couldn't tell you. Because I probably yeah. watched five, I probably watched ten episodes in three days, and then it's gone. So, yeah. Um, film-wise, I just watched the first of those Fear Street films. I wanted to wait for the full trilogy before I watched them. Um, oh yeah. That, that that was all right. That was pretty good. So I'm going to watch the next one. And um, books-wise, I'm reading. Uh, I always have a stack of comic books and graphic novels as like easy reading because I like to read something as like a palate cleanser. So I've got a load of comic books and stuff, but also. Um, for my birthday, my girlfriend bought me a collection of like 70s and 80s paperbacks, which are oh, like yeah. ghost story collections, which you buy authors who you probably would never see again. So, you know, like you'd go into like a drugstore and they'd be on like a rack for maybe two or three dollars or something in the 70s and 80s. And 
they'd have a really great cover and the authors inside it were probably people who you've never heard of and mm-hmm. yeah, the qualities there is quite considerably but there's some absolute gems in there and they're published on like proper pulpy paper so she got me a massive stack of them so i'm just kind of working through those at the moment yeah and that that's awesome i'm so glad you mentioned that because um i don't know if you've read it um but grady hendrix paperbacks from hell i Uh, read it's it's kind of like it's a really good book it's kind of like a coffee table book and he'll it has like all the covers but it's basically kind of like the history of that particular time period of history paperbacks and it'll have like the covers and he breaks it down by themes like satanic panic or you know killer hits and when you had said that like it just it struck me because after i read that you know because i'm i wasn't very familiar with that kind of time period of horror and after i read like oh well maybe I'll try and find some of these books. And I did. And it also spiraled into, Oh, I have so many books, but it (laughs) it spiraled into me going into like used bookstores and like, you know, I would just look at the cover and then kind of read the synopsis. And if it sounded cool, I'd pick it up. So I have like an affinity for collecting those kind of books too. I'm not sure um, if you collect them or, but yeah, it's it like there's nothing better than especially with that. And it applies to books now, even that, you know, with some of those books, like you said, you might have never have heard of them. And then, like, say you pick it up at a shop or whatever, and you're like, I have no idea who this is. But then you read it and it's like either really fun or really well written. Like it's all it's kind of like a it's kind of like a cool treasure hunt almost like because they might have been relatively lost the time so to speak and that you yeah, know people exactly. really talk yeah. about them yeah if you didn't pick up this particular book you'd probably never come across that story ever again it's yeah. not published anywhere else this writer didn't get it didn't have their own book published they they don't have anything adapted into films it exists solely in this paperback that was in print for about eight months in the 70s <laughs> yeah yeah and two sometimes you'll like come across ones like i've come across books where i've read them and i thought they were great and then you find out that you know for whatever reason that was that writer's only only book yeah yeah story yeah absolutely there's some which are really sad as well like i've got a collection of ghost stories by authors from like 1910 1912 that kind of era and there's a bunch of them who Mm -hmm. got published got the first stories published, went off to World War One, and then never came back. So you kind of think, what stories might they have had in them, you know, had they come home yeah. and carried on writing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I just want to say, too, about Bob's Burgers, I, I'm glad that you're enjoying it, because that was a, a late discovery for me as well, and you know now the whole family watches it and has a good time it's great, isn't it it's really great it, it, it's surprisingly emotional at times as well like yeah occasionally it'll just drop but it does it in a subtle way like i i really enjoy most animated comedy to be honest i i really like futurama but i think they're a bit heavy-handed with the emotional bits like the, mm-hmm. the music will swell and everything will it's sort of like right feel sad now go 
and it's like it kind of forces it on you and i kind of reject that whereas bob's Burger, <clears throat> bob's burgers is much more subtle with it and it just kind of lets you feel it naturally rather than forcing it with the music and the do you know does, does that make sense oh yeah yeah it makes total sense and um like <laughs> i i like this like i think i told my wife i was like i think bob belcher is my spirit animal <laughs> 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 he's quite a real uh, person though isn't he he's not exaggerated yeah. to the degree of like a homer simpson or a peter griffin or something he he is actually quite a realistic they, they never like exaggerate him too much they never sort of flanderize him he's, he always seems quite a believable person he's never ridiculous you know yeah yeah it's such yeah it's such a good show um so, yeah, um, Lex, I don't want to keep you uh, too much longer, um, but I just want to say again, um, I'm really happy to have you on. Um, Thank I'm you. enjoying. Yeah, I'm enjoying. Um, like I said, I'm about halfway through the old one in the sea with my daughter, and that's been a really special uh, experience. And I just want to give you the opportunity. Um, anything that you would like listeners to know, anything you want to promote. Um, where listeners can find you and pretty much anything that you want to cover that we haven't uh, covered already. Okay, well, uh, most recent release, as you said, is Whistling Past the Graveyard. That's available in paperback and uh, on the Kindle. Uh, you can get it from Amazon, but here in the UK, you can get it from other bookshops as well if you prefer. Um, what I usually recommend people with regard to looking at any of my work, because um, I know that people have some, some people have you know moral issue to giving money to amazon and i totally understand that but if you search for my name i'm under lex h jones that's my full author name if you search for me on amazon you get an author page for me where it lists all of the work that i'm in whether it's a book of my own or an anthology that i'm featured in so if you want to get the list of books off there and then go to a different website and buy one of them that's fine but amazon is quite a good central hub to get that list um i'm I'm also on on twitter under at lex h jones and i regularly share books of my own other people's books uh articles anything of interest writing related i I do try to keep it writing related i try to avoid anything Mm -hmm. else it's not that it's not that i don't have opinions about it but i just don't i'm not on social media for that you know social media is not my life i don't live there i have friends family interactions beyond it I don't want to get sucked into all of that because I think it's bad for your mental health and I've been down that rabbit hole before. So if you want in like hot political takes and that kind of thing, that is not what you're going to find on my Twitter. But if you want, I've just read this book and it was great. This is what this is what it is. Go and buy it. Or here's a new film I just watched or, or indeed talking about my own work. Then that's that's the kind of thing you'll get from me on Twitter. Awesome. Yeah, I um again, I can uh can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um I had a really great time and Thank you, me too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And um yeah, anytime um sometimes we have um guest hosts and things like that, but yeah, you're always welcome on the show and again, it was really great to get to hang out with you today. And you, thank you very much, Rich. Yep, have a good one, Lex. You too. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>